Hello everyone, welcome back to Science of the Soul. In this episode, I'd like to share a wonderful experience I had a few weeks ago with the radio show Only Human on 4ZZZ. I was invited and interviewed by Dr. Kim Stewart and Bell, and we talked about my PhD research in bereavement, trauma counseling for people with a refugee background, and culturally and spiritually aware psychotherapy. I feel very privileged to have had this experience with such warm and seasoned hosts, and it's definitely different being the interviewee for a change. So if you're keen to know a little bit about my background and some of my professional passions, and you have about 30 minutes or so to spare, I humbly invite you to tune in. You're listening to Only Human with Belle, Kim and Nathan, and we're here with our guest today, Amira Shah. Um, She's a counsellor, researcher and podcaster. So we're going to be talking a little bit about um, her work and her research. So um, Amira, could you tell us about your research topic, a little little about you also? All right. Thank you, Bella, for the introduction. No worries. Um, So my research is on bereavement and Islam in Southeast Queensland, and I started looking into this um, because I realized that bereavement can evoke a bit of an existential crisis and if you are brought up in a particularly religious environment Mm -hmm. there will be some spiritual questioning if the death experienced is traumatic or goes against your worldview or your assumptive worldview so um, on, uh, on the other hand, sometimes bereavement or existential crises like bereavement, when they occur, it can also reinforce someone's spirituality and religiosity. And I wanted to see what that's like here in Australia, um, predominantly Southeast Queensland, because I'm at the uh, University of Queensland. So um, I've decided to locate it here. But the reason why I wanted to look at Muslims in Australia is because of the diversity of Muslims here. Mm-hmm. You know, they come from all over the world. Um, some come in as migrants, skilled migrants. Some have been here forever f- during the Afghan and Camilleers time, so like 100 years. Mm-hmm. Um, some come in as refugees and just so diverse so I wanted to see how the diverse tapestry of the Islamic culture and the religion influences um, someone's bereavement because some of them are also converts Mm -hmm. and you just you just want to see how that is being negotiated in a transcultural environment like Australia so I was interested in that yeah could you tell us um, how you went about your research as well hmm um, it w- it's a qualitative research, mm-hmm. so I spoke with 20 bereaved Muslims in Southeast Queensland, who someone, people who have lost somebody in the last 10 years, someone significant. Mm-hmm. And often um, what I found out was that I get stories of other losses, not 
particularly like the one that they started talking about but mm -hmm. other losses um, losses of relationships losses of health where you know some people might have a diagnosis uh, a, a terminal or life-threatening diagnosis that changes their lives yes. um, pets things like that having to give up animals so lots of different losses start coming into the picture um, so I spoke to 20 and then in the second stage of my study I wanted to look at the social support that's available um, in Southeast Queensland mm -hmm. when it comes to supporting the grieving Muslim population because the Muslim population in Queensland alone is quite significant mm -hmm. um, it's over 600,000 that was the last stats but it's gone up and I wanted to see first if the Muslim population knew about counseling or psychological support that can help them with grief and other and other things um, and whether they would go to a psychologist or a religious leader like an imam mm -hmm. um, and then so I spoke to the imams the and the secular support services like social workers psychologists and counselors just to see what their take on uh, was on when it came to supporting um, Muslims in a psychotherapy or counseling um, field or area um, to see if they felt adequate doing that if they were comfortable to explore um, spiritual questions um, if they were if they had I guess spiritual awareness and cultural mm -hmm. awareness they felt comfortable confident to to work with uh, Muslims or even just tap into it and whether or not the religious leaders felt confident and comfortable to to offer counseling services yeah. um, or just support them in their mental health um, and so I've had some really surprising and interesting insights mm -hmm. and I'm currently doing the write-up and how's that going are you let's not talk about that okay <laughs> fair enough <laughs> can i ask you a question sure are there any particular uh grieving cultural practices in islam mm. can they you tell us about them yeah they seem pretty standard across the board from according to my research and my own um understanding um muslims generally um try to bury the deceased as soon as they can um get it in the ground um, so within the day, um, and then that's usually followed by, be before that there's a washing and shrouding. That's quite similar to other um, Abrahamic religions in the past as well. Um, and that's quite specific. I actually did a course on that, um, on how to wash and shroud the um, uh, a deceased person. Uh, and that was... That was an interesting experience um, coming from a very sensitive, humanistic approach um, and also a spiritual approach. So that was really cool just to understand how, what the process is like firsthand. Mm -hmm. And then and then the burial and that was followed by um, a lot of prayers and gatherings. A very co it's communal grieving in that sense. And I, I believe there are a lot of reasons behind the behind why communal grieving is is the way generally the way to go historically and probably up till today could i could i ask you um just to backtrack a little bit um you were talking about different forms of grieving mm -hmm. and i think that's really interesting because um i guess the first thing maybe we come to think of grief is with death but also i'm interested a little bit about the other forms and maybe the the um the impact 
is perhaps underestimated of um of losing a relationship like a marriage or a significant partnership and friendships and Mm. and pets as well could you could you elaborate a little bit about um maybe the comparison between what's understood um or what's maybe validated more i i guess Mm. so i'll start with that what's validated more is probably grievances that are visible Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you fall sick or you lose your ability to walk, for example, and loved ones pass away, obviously, um, immediate fam- nucleus immediate family mm-hmm. uh, members are considered, you know, more important. And then you've got like the grandparents and aunties and uncles. Although this is a very Western concept because in a lot of Eastern other other cultures really um african cultures like grandparents aunties and uncles are pretty much like brothers uh, cousins brothers and sisters like oh this is like my mom and my grandparent looked after me that sort of thing so um there's that so what is recognized i guess in a western um society is different than what would be recognized in an Asian society, for example, or an African society or a Middle Eastern society. Um, And so those would be the most validated, I think, um, in today's modern world. And then you've got your other losses like divorces. So so divorce tends to show up, you know, socially. It Mm -hmm. will enter your workplace if you're going through a divorce. Like, people tend to know about it and you, they do give you allowances and things Mm -hmm. like that. But then when it comes to things like pets, um, breakups, um, and maybe other less visible losses, um, financial losses, Mm -hmm. for example, you know, if you made a bad investment and then you lose like a hundred grand and (laughs) you know you don't really go around talking about that but it sits on you and it it has a different effect Mm -hmm. so i guess grief is really complex as well and then you also have the the invisible or less visible grief of miscarriage for example Mm -hmm. or an unborn child and then that's probably more visible or more apparent for the female but what about the male what mm-hmm. about the father what about the partner who is also going through that loss we often don't see that and nobody really talks about it yeah um so and and also it's all relative like maybe someone in their 50s or 60s might have had so many losses in in their lives they know how to cope they know what it's like the trajectory of it and you know you have a 13 year old girl who didn't have very strong attachments or relationships familiar relationships and but she has this pet chicken and then one day you know the pet chicken needs to be slaughtered and she has to eat it because they're so poor this is my mom's story by the way (laughs) (laughs) and you know and she wouldn't eat it but her dad would beat her until she would eat it because she hadn't eaten for for days um so that's 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 traumatic grief Mm. in itself so it's relative i i believe yeah. We talk on this show about um, disability issues a lot, and you mentioned earlier about um, diagnosis, you know, with, cro- for example, maybe chronic illness and things mm-hmm. like that. Did um, did you come across examples of that within your research? Yes, mm-hmm. yes, I did. I think I came across what. Um, 
something that came to that comes to mind right now was um, yeah, uh, relatively recent diagnosis of MS. Mm-hmm. Um, and how that was linked with the loss of a grandparent. Mm-hmm. Could I ask you also, um, you mentioned a little earlier about the differences um, between secular and religious sort of support systems. Um, did you uh, manage to evaluate the sort of whether it was adequate um, support given by secular um, organizations or um, individuals to a person who's who's more religious yeah so I mean that's the part of why I'm doing the research yeah. I'm trying to figure out um, what the climate is like in terms of social support mm-hmm. but it, we also have to wonder or think look at it as uh, from a different perspective as to whether or not the Muslim community um, what their perceptions are of t- getting secular support mm-hmm. You know, if they think that a, I'm not going to talk about my mental health, there's nothing wrong with me. My religion will give me my faith and everything that I need. Um, And if I seek for help outside, that means that I'm not strong in my faith. There is that belief um, Mm -hmm. amongst some people. And then there's the other perception where psychologists and Western psychologists are not going to understand. I can't talk to them about these things. Um, some of the participants I interviewed, what I've learned was that they wanted to keep it separate. They were just like, psychologists are psychologists and religion is religion. We don't mix it because I remember one person said, I feel that if I brought religion into the uh, counseling room or the, uh, with the psychologist, then, and if the psychologist said something about my religion, I feel that that will hurt me. Mm-hmm. So I'd rather not bring that together. Um, and so it really does depend on, to an extent, what the awareness and the knowledge and the understanding of um, the Muslim population uh, when it comes to seeking mental health support um, from secular services and then on the other hand also what do they think um, how do they perceive um, religious support do they think that if I go to you know speak to an imam the imam's just going to tell me the same thing that everybody tells me like be patient have faith you'll be reunited and you know reiterate and reinforce or are they able to listen to me are, are they able to discuss and in go into uh, deeper s- uh, spiritual questioning mm-hmm. um, and, and all s- these sort of things. Will they have the capacity for that? So there's a lot of uh, vagueness so far. My data is quite raw. I have to look into it again. I haven't analyzed that part yet. But so far, it seems as though there is lack of awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, and the lack of awareness of support um by uh, for the Muslim population, mm-hmm. um, and and they don't know that mental health and spirituality can go together. I was just about to ask you that. Did you find any crossover between uh, with the counselors who had beliefs as well that might have been more supportive? Yeah, yeah, I have. I found a, uh, spoke to a couple of social workers um, or in support coordinators um, who are of Muslim background, are Australian, second generation, 
Um, so, you know, purely transcultural in that sense. Mm -hmm. and, and they have a really deep um, understanding of, of the marriage between mental health and spirituality, which is awesome. And insanely enough, the imams that I spoke with here um, in Queensland, three out of five of them, oh, maybe four, a good, a good number, um, are trained in counseling. Really? Or have a really deep understanding of um, how to approach such cases. And That's I so helpful. It's really great. And like a couple of them have PhDs as well. So I was just like, ah, oh, but they take it upon themselves to, to do a diploma in counseling and things like that. It's not mandatory or required yeah. by the Islamic Imams Association. I don't know what it's called. So Sorry. did any of your participants have that experience of, of working with a counsellor who also had the same beliefs as them? No. Oh. No. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Within the um, experience of, like, alternatively, um, people who are going to somebody who is not from the same background as them, would, it, uh, would you say that... Um, the experience could be really damaging if somebody were to um, make an assumption about their religion or um, sort of the the differences within you know cultural backgrounds as well being prevalent within professionals. Mm. Are you trying to say that counselling is very white? Yes. Yes, that's it what is. Saying. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <It> is. <laughs> um, look, honestly. Based on my personal experience, being a practitioner in Australia for a f number of years, I don't get that sense. Maybe because I end up, you know, interacting with a lot of people from various backgrounds and my white Australian colleagues and friends are really well informed. Um, so personally, nope. I don't have that that's sense. Good. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, this is now in the past few and years. And that's part of ethical practice, isn't it? To, to know your limits and know when to refer mm. to somebody else if it doesn't work for you. Yeah. You're not going to work for that client. Mm. Mm. Yeah, because, like, whiteness aside, um, there are psychologists or psychiatrists um, in Australia who, you know, they would offer... Um, like diagnosis or assessments to perhaps uh, the immigration for asylum seekers right. and things like that. Mm -hmm. And they might be of, you know, um, they, they probably won't be of a Western background mm -hmm. because they will be able to speak and understand the culture. So they'll be of maybe some Middle Eastern background or something like that. And they might have the assumption that everyone who is not white, that is perhaps from um, Afghanistan or something like that, or Pakistan, might want something from them, mm -hmm. um, a diagnosis or an assessment, and then just assume that they're there for paperwork rather than for help. actual help. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and so they get dismissed. And then the moment you, you come across a mental health professional or even a doctor or something or something like that um, and that's your first experience chances are if you're going back for more help is you know a lot lesser it's quite heartbreaking yes. Yes. yeah and I think that um, reaching out uh, is is like a vulnerable 
thing and to have um, to be knocked back or to be disappointed in the level of support or or even or even be like harmed by mm. the help that you're seeking mm. yeah would be pretty devastating and yeah. have repercussions like yeah. yeah and a few of my participants have actually um, expressed that the secular help that they sought um, ultimately was a negative experience so they're like we're not doing that again right, yeah. mm, which is really sad you know and that was regardless of what color the skin of their therapist was yeah I'm going to talk to Amira now about her work as a trauma counsellor. So you working as a trauma counsellor with refugees in particular, is that right? Yeah, I did I did used to do that. Yeah. Okay. And what sort of um, experiences did refugees come to you with? Mm. Good question. <laughs> Big question. Um, lots of different things. Um, a lot of PTSD, mainly. Um... So that was from their experiences before they fled to Australia. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So some seriously, some serious horror stories. Um, things I don't. I've never even watched in movies. Really, you know, I had to kind of imagine what was going on for them. Um, so right now, when you ask me this question, all I have in my mind are flashes of images of my imagination of what went on for them, and that's why I'm finding my words because a picture paints a thousand words <laughs> and if it's in your head <laughs> you have to really search for the words but yeah a lot of them were um, victims for from um, war crimes um, some were held hostage there was a lot of sexual assault um, a lot of poverty and half of them were not poor to begin with um, half of them have university degrees some um, were teachers um, some were doctors um, and war just destroys everything to the point where you're living in a refugee camp and I remember someone telling me this um, her, her dad was shot in front of her and he was a politician and she was, I think, studying medicine or something like that in university or literature. I can't remember anymore. And suddenly overnight, she was searching for tomatoes um, on the streets with her tiny children, toddlers, as the only thing that they could find to eat because they hadn't eaten three days since since all that started in her town. So, yeah, those kind of stories. Um and, and wanting to also, trying to also assimilate and acculturate and integrate in, in Australia. You know, it's exciting for them. They want to put a lot of things behind. They don't want to rehash some stuff. But things come up because, you know, they're, uh, when you've gone through such traumatic experiences, especially with head injuries and gunshots and being exposed to all sorts of things um, that are beyond our imagination here in Australia. Um that will impact to some extent your cognitive 
capacities mm, yeah. and abilities, you know, to learn. So they have to learn English, they learn how to drive, how to take the public transport, what's legal, what's not legal. Um, so we help them with the settlement and what's okay, what's not okay, and also um, talk to them and, and through some of their struggles here and trying to integrate. Um, but mostly they're all very, very grateful. And most of them have um, actually all that I interact, all my clients that I interacted with back then um, had a really strong sense of spirituality and, and religion. Um, and I think that really kept them sane. Right, that's good. Did any of your clients have experiences of the refugee detention system in Australia? Asylum seekers, yeah, from mm. Sri Lanka. I didn't speak with them as much um, because when I started, some of the detention centres centers that would send their um, residents there into, into the Northern Territory um, had already shut down. So they were just pre-existing cases, um, mainly the ones that I interacted with were from Syria and Sri Lanka. I've heard people say that um, the temporary protection visa system is a secondary kind of detention for people. Did you have people that were having trouble with their visas as well? No, not not at the centre I was working with because um, the, the ones that came in, we could only service refugees with a refugee visa. Yeah, right. Okay, so, so people who had been genuinely found to be refugees by the Australian system? Yeah, that came in by UNHCR, they right, were flo yeah. flown in, not the asylum seekers. Well, it's good that they got their, re their refugee status recognised, yeah. yeah. But, you know, with the election coming up, it's good for people to hear, I think, that um, people who come to Australia and with such a hard time to get here as well, did some of them come here in very difficult circumstances? Yeah, and um, I mean, one of the asylum seekers that I spoke with briefly, um, it was he was probably at the tail end of his um, therapeutic support at the point when I started working with him, and you could s you could visual you could see visible scars and mutilation on his body mm. um, you could see from his mannerisms and his posture how he carried himself and what was weighing down on him um, because they can't work you know they they really go through hell in in this like limbo world that mm. you know they're like okay I'm safe now but hey I could be here for forever and in this situation I can't reunite with my family mm. but then I might go back maybe I should go back and just die you know some really really dark thought patterns but legitimate I think because that's their reality yeah. um, that's the visa system that yeah. does that people yeah 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 horrible so I guess um, you're when you're working with people who have trauma what what do you think works best for them re for refugees who've experienced trauma you've got their spirituality mm. Mm. and um, what about uh, building trust with the community is that something that people yeah. struggle with um, well, the refugee clients that come in, they don't have much of an issue with building trust with their own community because sometimes they already know a lot of people there <laughs> <laughs> um, and they get reunited with aunties and uncles and whatnot. So the community just embraces them. It's quite beautiful. Um, and often I work with interpreters and the interpreters would also be part of the community. So I have to be quite careful in terms of confi confidentiality and stuff. Um, mm. And the interpreters also know that. Um, 
and we do a lot of community work you know we throw parties all the time <laughs> all the time the refugee center where we work was not like a workplace <laughs> or an office in that sense it's yeah it becomes a bit of a party hall from time to time and then we'll get everyone from the community um to cook and provide food dance dj play music drums everything and um since the large portion of our clientele are from uh the drc uh, Cong uh democratic republic of congo or um and sudan some from syria as well you can imagine the African beats going off and little kids like <laughs> I swear they probably learn how to dance before they walk because the way they shake their body parts even <laughs> I like I can't do it I tried to follow them like what are you doing I can't do it so, yeah. oh, I love to hear that there's that fun stuff going on that celebration of life because yeah. they've been through so much that they yeah. deserve that don't they <laughs> yeah they, they, I think dance music church um, those are the pillars of support for them pillars of joy as well yeah. um, and a lot of them are really excited to learn mm. that's beautiful so amira thank you so much for um sharing all your insights and um your experiences with your research um we'd just like to finish up the show and ask you a few questions about your podcast what's your podcast called my podcast is called science of the soul so that's signs as in s-c-i-e-n-c-e -E, not um street signs mm -hmm. um and it's actually my COVID baby mm -hmm. so it was birthed during lockdown the first uh year and i was bored and i wanted to do something different and challenge myself um i'm r relatively techni technologically challenged so it was just something different I wanted to do mm -hmm. basically um, and yeah I'm still doing it I have a lot of fun it's a fun project um, I talk to people I've worked with people that I meet anyone who is in the mental health industry or has some significant inputs into mental health in general mm -hmm. um, from whatever angle really um, and I just talk to them and learn from them. So it's, it's a bit of a learning um, platform for me as well. And that's what I want to um, share with whoever that would listen. That's what I like about Only Human is that I feel like I'm constantly learning from the people that we interview me here. Me too. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's great. <laughs> so um, what would you say has been your favorite episode so far? And what was the topic you covered? <laughs> oh my god <laughs> I was not prepared for this question <laughs> um, you're going to have to give me a moment that's okay <laughs> you're going to have to give me a moment yes <laughs> so if you are interested in uh, if you like the sound of Amira's voice which is sounds really good on the radio I think sure does. you can go and find her uh, podcast Science of the Soul on Spotify and I think it's also Apple Podcasts so I had a little yes. look for it earlier and um, Amira also has a YouTube channel and we'll talk about maybe that um, in a minute um. uh -huh. now I have okay. the list of my episodes they're about they're more than 12 I stopped counting um, the last one I did was on empowering cultural diversity and disability 
through education and social inclusion. And that was done with an ex-colleague, this wonderful woman, Isabel. Um, and we talked about so many different things. We just digressed. That's the beauty of podcasts, right? You just digress. Um, so that was really, really helpful. Um, I learned a lot from her. She's in South Australia now. And the one before that, I think, was one of my favorites. It was um, It's on post-traumatic growth. Mm-hmm. from post-traumatic stress disorder and it's with an author and a therapist and um, a nutritionist this woman she's quite well rounded in terms of um, her knowledge mm-hmm. and she was yeah she, she she and I we explored so many different areas um, of mental health and growth even through um, spirituality as well so I really enjoy recording that with her. I've, I've had so many. I kind of enjoy all of them. But there were a couple somewhere in there um, that was with a biblical counselor. Mm-hmm. I wanted to hear what his take was on some things. Um, that went pretty philosophical. And previously, before that, I spoke with another ex-colleague who is a Buddhist practitioner of many, many years, decades. Um, and we used to work together with um, Refugee Health. And um, he gave me a Buddhist um, insight into ego mm. and, and, and love and other things. Um, so, yeah. I think, like I think those, um, those podcasts you mentioned, they kind of tie all of the topics together, don't they? Because mm. you're talking about bereavement and how, uh, what it feels like for people and how spirituality helps them. And then there's that element of, of, of refugees having a terrible time but coming to a better place mm. or uh, you know, improving their lives. And then there's that notion of that that trauma is not always well. It's always bad when it happens to you, but mm. afterwards, it can your life can be even better because yeah. you can grow th- through that. Yeah, yeah, that sounds beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> it is a recurring theme even in my in my studies um, in my research, where so far eighty percent of what I've gone through, um, people reported uh, personal growth. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I guess um, the thing that we didn't ask you, although it's getting close to the end of our show now, is that what got you into this topic? Is is it something personal? Yeah, to you? yeah, yeah. So my mother passed away quite suddenly, and it was. It took me two years to realize that it was traumatic grief coming from a trauma counselor. Yeah. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> talk about blind spots, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and my whole world changed. And then I realized, and I started talking to people, that I wasn't the only one. Um, so, yeah. That was the mother who had the chicken experience? Yes. Oh, my God, that's so awful. Mm-hmm. I remember a couple of years ago, my favorite cat died, and um, I worked with a couple of people who didn't like cats. <laughs> I mm-hmm. couldn't talk to them about it, and they were counselors. Oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was oh, no. hard. It was very hard. <laughs> That's well, I guess bereavement is different for everyone, isn't it? Too? Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, you really enlightened us today. Thank you so much for coming in and, um, and sharing your knowledge and your, um, your, um, your, all of the things that are really, um, important. And I think that's something that most people will go through various forms of bereavement and grief and so we can all learn about how we you know um how we move through it and how we feel it and Mm. yeah okay well um we 
Might We've go got 10 minutes. Yeah. Uh, perhaps I just want to um, ask you one more question about... Sure. I, I guess um, the Western world's got a bit of a bad rap in terms of not being prepared and denying that death is going to happen to us. You know, mm-hmm. we have this sense of youth and living forever. Do you think that is not working for us <laughs> in, so, in terms of other cultures? Are other cultures more prefer, mm-hmm. uh, prepared for death than we are? Yeah, I think that is true to an extent. Um, I wasn't raised in a Western culture, so I've been going to funerals since I can remember. So there is a certain normalcy to that um, and, and knowing that this will come. And with a lot of my participants that I speak to, they have also gone through the same thing because with... Um, communities communal grieving what happens is that everyone in town knows it's announced and you all come together you do the congregational prayers the the wakes you know like with with the hindus and the buddhists their wakes and everyone comes throughout seven days everyone knows this person has Mm. passed away and supports the family and um even the irish you know they would keep uh, shaking hands and saying uh to the bereaved um, I'm so sorry for your loss. And, and so it, it's really hard to not have that sink into you, not only cognitively, but, you know, into your um, sense of being, even through a physical uh, way. Because if someone k- keep like, imagine 50 people come up to you and keep shaking your hand and saying, I'm sorry for your loss. Like, that's going to be ingrained on a biological and f- physical level as well. So you can't be in denial for too long if that makes sense so um and then the support there's always a lot of support around you everyone knows how are you doing this and that they send this they send that they call um in in muslim cultures um you don't even worry about food because there'll be a hundred people at your (laughs) house but they're all bringing food looking after everyone you know so and and is it still acceptable to continue to talk about that person after their death for yeah, because yeah, I find that when people died in my life that there's like a certain number of weeks where it's acceptable and then they don't, oh. people don't expect you to talk about it anymore in Western culture. Oh, really? Mm. Oh, I still talk about my mom like almost daily <laughs> and she passed away four years ago. Mm. You can talk about your mom to us, we don't mind. I think Thanks. that's you. <laughs> um, something about like shutting down the grief mm. and not expressing mm. the emotion and um, that suppression mm. because... You just have to get on with it, I guess. Yeah. In yeah. fact, our, some a relative of mine actually said that. Yeah. We just have to really? get on with it. Yeah. yeah. I'm it's so over now. We have to get on with it. Well, you know what it is. People keep saying you have to move on, but really you need to move forward with it rather than leave it behind you. It's a part of you, and yeah. if you're grieving and you're sad about it, it affects you. You have to somehow integrate that loss or that life that you had with this person or this creature. Um, forward. It's not about you know dis- discarding. It's about recreating yourself and I working guess. through it too. Isn't yeah. It? Any any emotions that are denied and pushed down, they find a way out, don't they? Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes. That was good advice anyway, Amira. Thank you for that. It is nearly time for us to go, so uh, we're going to go out with a song from. Uh, who are we going out with, Nathan? Have we got something? Oh. We might have to. <laughs> oh, yes, thank you. Just thank you for being on the, on the show, Amira. And well, when you finish your PhD, definitely come back and talk to us about what you found. 
I will. That I would will. be great. It'll be in a, in another year. But look, thank you guys so much for this opportunity. It's been really nice um, checking out for Triple Z and yeah, speaking with you guys about things that are close to my heart. We so appreciate thank you. you coming in.